from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. Today is Tuesday, the 27th of November, 2018. I am very excited to have Dr. Harry Hill as my guest on LabMind today. Dr. Hill is an academic pediatrician and immunodeficiency specialist with a long clinical and research career here at the University of Utah focused on immunodeficiency syndromes. Early in his career, I was interested to see that he started off as an EIS officer for the CDC, Epidemic Intelligence Surveillance. Any listeners who don't know what an EIS officer is uh, should go Google this because it's actually really cool. He later went on to train in pediatrics and did fellowships in immunology and infectious diseases, and then came out to the University of Utah, where he set up immunodeficiency clinics and uh, his basic research lab, then later joined the clinical laboratory as a laboratory director. He was one of the faculty co-founders of ARUP back in 1984. And one of the things we want to talk about is a decade later in 1996, he founded the ARUP Research Institute. Over the course of his career, Dr. Hill has authored or co-authored almost 300 journal articles, along with the usual long list of textbooks, book chapters, uh, grand rounds, etc. But the part of his CV that I really smiled at was the list of his mountain climbing ascents, which is quite impressive between his skiing and his rock climbing and, and, and everything else. So Dr. Hill, welcome to the LabMind podcast. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it, and I, I look forward to our discussion this morning. My first question, you know, back to the beginning of your career, you did this classic academic medical thing of, of setting up a clinical practice and a bench research program and started to get grants and all of that. What brought you into the clinical laboratory? Why, why did you start hanging out with pathologists? This really started when I went to the University of Minnesota for my fellowship. I was working with Dr. Lewis Wanamaker, who was a very famous gentleman who proved that you could treat streptococcal infections and prevent rheumatic fever. I got heavily involved in the lab and also met my other mentor, Dr. Paul Kui, who described the defect in chronic granulomatous disease, the bactericidal defect. And so I was heavily involved in the lab. Then I met a former fellow of Dr. Quee's, Dr. John Matson. Yes, a famous name here. And Dr. Matson was one of the people who really instituted ARUP way back. John was a microbiologist, and from my work with strep, I got interested in microbiology as well. And I said, boy, that looks interesting. So John, as he always did, said, well, come on over. You can come work in the micro lab on Saturdays. (laughs) (laughs) My fellowship includes six days a week of full-time work, and I would work in the micro lab over with John. And that's really how I got interested in laboratory medicine. When I came here, I was going to be working in microbiology and maybe was going to be sent to the VA to run their micro lab when I realized there was no immunology here at all. There was no immunology lab. And so I ended up taking one person who was doing protein electrophoresis and one woman who was doing VDRLs, and we put those together and started the immunology lab, which is... Now, I think the second largest lab here at ARUP. I think, particularly in immunology, 
Without the immune test that we do, it's extremely difficult to make a diagnosis of immune deficient patients. You don't know what's causing this infection or that infection. So it's critical. And so the interaction of the lab and the clinician, in my opinion, is critical. So as an immunologist and seeing patients in your immunodeficiency clinic, how important was it or how valuable has it been for you to be the laboratory director of the lab performing those tests versus, say, sending it to another city or something like that? Many of the tests we perform, particularly in the Sayle and the Nate Immunology Lab, which I started and run, use live cells, okay? Use cells that uh, have to function, and they're very similar to people. They get grouchy sometimes. They get hot if they sit on the runway too long at an airport, let's say. Or if they get too cold, they just don't work as well. If you put them in the refrigerator and they quit. Okay, so uh, being directly involved with the patients, taking the cells, bringing them over here to ARUP. Of course, it was used to be at the university. We'd just bring them up a floor. That made them work much better, and it gave you a better idea of what was really going on. So I think it's a critical interaction, particularly in the area of cellular uh, immunology. So in clinical laboratories, there are these multiple different career tracks available to be a lab director. And we certainly respect all of them, and we value all of them, and we have people from all these different backgrounds. But you're coming at this from the clinician standpoint, and I don't see as much of that anymore as maybe there were many years ago. And I wonder what your thoughts are. Do you think more clinicians should look at a laboratory component to their career, that, that we should be trying to recruit more clinicians to be lab directors? Brian, I really think that would be a good idea. Now, I must point out that a lot of our pathology residents have done a year or two of clinical work before they come back. And I think when they come through the lab, I think they... They do the best job, yeah. to be very honest. I think uh, that experience is very good for them. Yes, I think we should recruit more. Interestingly, in microbiology and immunology, there are a good many clinicians who are actively involved in the laboratories. Yeah. Still, I mean, I head of our microbiology, uh, Dr. Kim Hans has an infectious disease doc who's seeing patients every day uh, and is a superb laboratorian Mm -hmm. as well. Going back to the founding of ARUP, this is a topic I'm really interested in and interviewed at length Carl Sheldsberg on this topic. But you were one of those core faculty back in those early days that were involved in, in getting ARUP off the ground. From what I understand, this was a really unusual and in some ways controversial idea that that this academic medical center would start doing stuff that looks like a commercial laboratory. I'm curious what your thoughts were back then. Were were you in favor of this? Did you think it was a good idea to launch this um, commercial activity? Or were you nervous about the impact on the academic mission? Brian, to be honest, I think there were about five of six of us who were on the executive committee. I think at the time I was representing microbiology and immunology, we had a separate kind of division of that. I think all of us were interested in providing clinical laboratory services to a wider range of people. At first, it was Utah. Okay, 
let's do the state. Let's let's see if we can get IHC to come in with us and so forth. And then gradually this idea of let's really expand. Uh, unfortunately, the budget that the hospital had and so forth for us uh, was not adequate to do that. And the space that we had uh, was not good at all, <laughs> okay? And so I think that's when we made the decision something else has to be done if we want to go on and, uh, and, and get this laboratory started and help more than just the people at the University of Utah. And so that's when we started ARUP. So it sounds like the driving motivation here was just expanding the patient impact. You knew you had a good laboratory. You wanted to offer this to a broader audience, a broader set of patients and clinicians. Brian, I think that's right. And people were asking for it as well. So, yes. Let's fast forward a little bit, another decade, up to about 1996. I wanted to ask you about the Research Institute. You founded the, the AREP Research Institute, and you led it for a large number of years, and, and it really had your, your stamp on it. Why did you start the Research Institute? What, what was the underlying need there that you were trying to fill? Right. If you have a reference laboratory, you're supposed to be doing esoteric reference testing, okay? That was our main focus at first, to do really difficult tests for other laboratories to do, esoteric lab tests. And so you had to develop new tests because new tests were being you know, brought online all over the country, okay? Um, we wanted to be the first to bring many of these on, to be honest. And so we had technicians in the laboratory trying to do research as well as do their regular work. That's extremely difficult. And uh, as we grew, as we got more clients, our poor people in the lab doing research had no time to do research whatsoever. And so that's when I said, hey, this is, we've got to do something about this. Let's, let's start a research institute. I think there had been some research institutes in laboratory medicine created back in Boston. And I said, geez, that's a great tactic. Let's do it here, and let's call it Institute of Clinical and Experimental Pathology. And so we then got a budget that we could take those people who were more interested in research, bring them into the research institute, and say, okay, your job is to do research 90% of the time, okay? And it seemed to work. We stayed ahead. We developed a lot of new tests before other laboratories did in many cases. And to be honest, I think at one point we brought in 40% of the increase in funds every year for several years with the new tests that had been developed. So talk for a minute about the employees of the Research Institute, the people working there. You're pairing up dedicated Research Institute staff with the medical directors who are all faculty. But talk about the staff part for a minute. Initially, they started out as technicians in the lab. They were med medical technologists, or they were people who had BS degrees, who had worked in this area, chemistry, biology, physiology, all you know types of BS degrees. We hired them 
in the med as a medical technologist, uh, with or without a med tech degree, because we'd later train them more, and and they were in many cases were very interested in research, and those are the people we kind of brought over into the research institute. Most of them started as BS degrees, uh, a few had masters, uh, and then we started getting application from a number of PhD scientists as well. When you graduate with a graduate degree, uh, it's often a hard time to find a good position. You've worked your whole graduate degree in research and you want to keep doing that. And I think that's a, a real positive of ARUP. We've been able to hire so many people with advanced degrees and bring them in, let them do research, let them lead the various laboratories in their research. And I think it's been a tremendous opportunity for them. And it's been great for our graduate students graduating from the University of Utah because many of them come here to work. That doesn't, not exclusive. We still have med techs. We still have hire people with just BS degrees. Uh, but many of them, interestingly, once they've gotten here, have gone on to get a master's degree or to get a Ph.D. degree. At the same time that they're working here? At the same time they're working, in fact, <laughs> many of them working full time. Which is actually really impressive. And I just gave a, the Hill Award. Yes. Know, it was an award for climbing the mountain of academic achievement, which we started a number of years back. And I just gave one to a guy. Uh, just an incredible guy who's gotten his his med tech degree. He's gotten a uh, advanced med tech degree. He's got a nursing degree, and now he's thinking about getting a, a PhD in medical uh, administration. Actually, so it's great what people can do. I think. The Hill Award, I think, is a great example of how you and, and the institution led by you has been really supportive of people pursuing academic goals at the same time that they're working full-time. Yes, right. And some of their stories are just absolutely amazing. Just amazing what some of them have been able to do. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of hard work in there. Yes. Even though these positions are not faculty positions, you set up the career tracks to have a certain academic flavor to them. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because you had expectations for publishing papers, speaking at conferences, things like that. What was your thinking there? You know, Brian, I think that's one of the most interesting, exciting things I've done, having the opportunity to do your work, submit an uh, abstract to a major scientific meeting, you know, go and see all the other scientists in your area at those meetings. Travel to different parts of the country, different parts of the world. That's exciting. That's fun. That's getting out there and establishing a reputation for yourself and for ARUP and the University of Utah, which obviously owns ARUP. There are some people, both within the university and outside the university, who have been skeptical about this idea of doing commercial activities within an academic not-for-profit organization. And the reasoning, I think, seems to go that if you want to be a successful business, you have to act ruthless and all of the ways that we stereotype business people as. 
So in your opinion, do you think that ARUP has been in any way less successful due to the ways that we've maintained these academic values? Uh, to be very honest, Brian, I think we can attribute a good part of our success to having these values, to developing these new tests, to not being the lab that follows the other labs. You can develop new tests without publishing papers, without going to conferences. Do you think those things are also important to ARUP's success? Uh, I really I really do, because it gets our people out. It lets them talk with other scientists. It lets them have a reputation as well. It lets them see what other people are doing and interact with them. That's what the scientific academic world is all about. It's interaction, learning from other people. It's a whole world of, of scientific advancement. Which, from a technology standpoint, makes a lot of sense because, you know, we're using technology, we're advancing technology. Of course, we want to be at the cutting edge. The academic world, though, the value system of academic science requires a lot of transparency. In academics, you publish everything you do openly so that other people can try to copy you. And much of the business world is, is almost allergic to that. You know, there's a lot of the technology business world where it's all about secrecy and even misleading. We can think of examples in medical technology outside of our world where you see that. Do you think that you know, this openness, this transparency, do you think that has made AREP more successful as an organization in any way? In the academic area, you certainly want to pursue really good ideas. If you have something that might make a significant contribution, that might be worth a good bit of money for yourself, for ARUP for the university, you can get a patent on it, and you can pursue that. And more and more academics are doing this. Mm -hmm. Look at all the monoclonal antibodies and things that people are treating various cancers with now. I mean, it's the new mode of therapy in many cases. And I think that comes from doing research. And you know when this needs to be patented. You know when you don't want it out there right away where you need to develop it further if you're going to have a successful patent. When you think about your long career in particularly around immunodeficiencies, you know, treating patients, developing new tests, and publishing new science on this, are there any particular accomplishments that sort of rise to the top in terms of your level of satisfaction that you feel great about having brought that to the world? Well, I think perhaps one of them is uh, a test that uh, we didn't particularly develop, but we started here at ARUP a long time ago, and that is one that identifies patients with chronic granulomatous disease, which my mentor, Dr. Quee, first described the bactericidal defect in. We used to do what's called an NBT test for that stain with a yellow dye, you put it under a microscope, and you count 200 cells and see how many have a little black deposit in them. I've counted so many millions of cells that maybe that's why I can't see quite as good <laughs> anymore. But we took other people's assays and developed a neutrophil oxidative burst assay, or the DHR, okay? And that's where you identify these people. There's about one in 250,000 individuals that has this disease. They get terrible abscesses. They get terrible pneumonias. 
They frequently will die at a fairly early age if you don't diagnose them and put them on the right medications and prophylaxis for fungal infections. And some of us use interferon gamma to treat those people, a cytokine, which kind of turns their cell on some. We developed that test. Well, we didn't develop it new. We brought somebody else's assay in, put it up. It's a fairly high-volume test, and we think we make a lot of diagnoses. Uh, There's one company that sends the DHRs from all over the country to us to be done to rule in or out this chronic granulomatous disease. We also develop a very rapid molecular test, 90% of the cases of CGD. With Dr. Carl Whitmer, we collected a whole bunch of these patients and developed a test we could do in 24 hours. And we think it's a very rapid way to molecularly prove that you have this particular disease. I think that's one of our main areas in the cellular and innate immunology lab that contributes significantly uh, to medicine. So from the patient perspective, you've got a patient with these recurrent infections. How does the existence of these tests change that patient's life? I mean, what would the patient's experience be like going through the medical system if you didn't have this test available? I think uh, a large number of these people would die. They would die before they got to be five or six years old if we didn't have the test to diagnose them, and which would tell us what to do as far as preventing infections in them, or treating them with special agents, et cetera, et cetera. There's no question. Many of these patients died at a very early age before we came up with these diagnostic techniques And that brought on the treatment techniques. So is that because the clinical characteristics overlap too much with just normal infections? Why are these hard to diagnose without the tests? These patients may start off with just having an abscess, just having a cervical lymphadenitis with a swollen gland. I mean, how many people have that? Millions of people have that. They have recurrent ear infections. They can get a pneumonia too. If you don't catch that after the first or second serious infection, people can die from immune deficiency. I always say, two serious infections, you better think about the possibility of a primary immune deficiency, which is either the white cells don't work right, you don't have make antibodies, your complement system doesn't work, or your T cells don't work. And those people die if you don't diagnose them and put them on appropriate therapy and prophylaxis. In the United States, do you think that we do a good job of getting these patients into an academic medical center? Because realistically, the only place you're going to find an immunodeficiency specialist like you is at a major academic medical center. I think, as a matter of fact, that that happens fairly reliably in the U.S. because we do have good places all over. I've visited five or six of them this year, as a matter of fact, to give talks. Excellent places who have tests available. Sometimes we offer the tests for them. They have them available themselves. And uh, yes, most of them will get into a major academic center, although there's some who are taken care of by specialists in cities that don't have uh, a true academic medical center, and they do a good job often consulting with one of the major academic centers. 
And by the way, I get phone calls from throughout the Intermountain West out here. You kind of, we kind of scattered out. There's University of Colorado, University of Utah, San Francisco, Seattle. There's a big area of the country here that we get an awful lot of calls and referrals from. And I think that's critical, to be honest. I think the laboratory who services those areas is yes, critical. Absolutely. I've long felt like our medical reimbursement system, the payment systems, insurance, and all of that doesn't seem to really respect academic medicine. And academic medical centers seem to always be struggling for their existence. And yet, if you've got one of these less common diseases, the academic medical center is an absolute lifeline in one form or another. Absolutely. And I have to admit that uh, particularly with intravenous immunoglobulin, or some of the cytokines, things like that I mentioned it can be a battle with the insurance companies. We have to prove and prove and prove again that this patient has this, that they absolutely need this very expensive medication. The best way to do it is with the laboratory test that improves they have it. So what's next for you? Do you have any big projects for the next couple of years? Oh, we're, we're working on, on something I think is really exciting with one of the hematology-oncology people looking at uh, some cytokines and a disease that is a type of cancer that affects an awful lot of people, and I'm I'm excited about that. I'm going on my 45th year here, so uh, my main job is to keep on moving. Yes, and in terms of keeping on moving, do you have any any mountains (laughs) um, in your near future? Are you still skiing? I'm still skiing, absolutely, mainly in the backcountry, Brian, where the snow is better. As you probably know, about a year and a half ago, I went to Everest Base Camp area, which was spectacular. I didn't climb Everest, but darn it, I wish I could have. Uh, I'm impressed. So, <laughs> I want to go climb Mount Whitney in Southern California, which is the tallest mountain in the continental United States. I'd really like to do that. Is that still on your list? That's on my list. I got to do it. Excellent. All <laughs> right. Well, uh, Dr. Hill, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. It's been a fun conversation. As always, Brian, it's a delight to talk to you and discuss these critical issues. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more LabMind podcasts at www.arup.utah.edu or subscribe to LabMind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.